Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Color Purple. The Color Purple was written by Alice Walker and published in 1982. And the film adaptation, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, came out in 1985. It's Black History Month, so it seemed like the perfect time to do this episode, and it also coincides with the new movie that's based on the musical that's based on this book. Yes, which nobody knows is a musical because none of the marketing is making that clear. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it did seem like a good time for uh, this episode since this uh, story and uh, the musical and the Spielberg movie are all kind of like back up in conversation again. Yeah. And um, if you're interested in hearing us discuss the musical, we are going to do a bonus episode on that. So um, tune in to our Patreon, become a patron at any level and you get access to all of our bonus episodes. We put one out every month and um, this month, Maybe towards the end of the month or maybe at the beginning of March, depending on when we get it out. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be close. Um, It is on uh, Max now. Yes, It did just start streaming on Max. Yeah, definitely. Also, it's very funny because we we, kind of put it together after we planned this month's content. But we did. (laughs) So we did an episode on Red, White, and Royal Blue, kind of for Valentine's Day. And then we were like, oh, my God, what do the colors red, white, and blue make? Purple. The color purple. The color purple. The color purple. And at first, we were just like, oh my God, it's a color themed month, right? All of our episodes are color related. I'm like, oh my God, it actually, when you mix the first episode's colors, they become this one. I need to make a social media animation of this or or something. It's very funny and it works really well. And we definitely did it on purpose. Yes. Despite these two books really having nothing in common. Not really. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, so like this movie kind of has a a really interesting history to it. And the book as well, obviously. Yeah, the book um, won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction and also won the National Book Award. Was kind of like an instant bestseller and classic when it came out. Has gone on to just be hugely influential in so many ways. I mean, it's one of the most frequently challenged and banned books as well. I could imagine. <laughs> I mean, the, Not content, that I agree, the but... content is very serious and there's queer themes as well that people have objected to. So yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting book. Yeah. And in terms of like film history, this movie, you know, directed by Steven Spielberg, and it was kind of his first, what he considers serious movie. And he said he couldn't go on later to direct like Schindler's List if he hadn't have done this first. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, it kind of launched the career of Oprah not it didn't launch uh, sorry i meant uh it launched the career of Whoopi goldberg yeah and it was oprah's first movie as well mm-hmm. uh and so it, and it got nominated for 11 oscars won nothing wow and i think it's like still one of the most highly nominated movies to not win anything like ever yeah i know um Whoopi goldberg and oprah winfrey were both nominated for best actress and um supporting actress categories which i mean both of them were so amazing in this movie especially Whoopi goldberg yeah and i mean it was nominated for best picture i know it was nominated for adapted screenplay um music spielberg interestingly didn't get nominated though it was the only movie for the Best Picture Oscar that didn't get a directing Oscar for him. For that year. Yeah. Okay. So just kind of a really fascinating history movie-wise for this. Yeah. Let's get into the story. Um, I want to talk about how this book is written and then how the movie kind of tackles that style. So um, this book is called An Epistolary Novel, 
think I'm saying that right. I'm so glad because <laughs> I meant to look that word up. I'm like, I know there's a word for when a Epistolary, book, a book is made up of letters. Yes. Um, so it's letters, but they're more like prayers because they're letters to God that our main character, Celie, is writing. And we don't know if she's writing them down literally or if they're just in her head yes. right and this reminded me of our episode on <laughs> are you there god it's me margaret yes right ex- exactly letters to god literally um so kind of funny that connection there with that book but she's always writing to god in her head and we have it literally written out for us in letters and the movie kind of tackles this with showing us a lot of scenes and then also including voiceover yes so we have Celie as uh like a 12-year-old girl at the introduction of the story, or like, you know, 14, 14, I think. And she is growing up with her her pa. Uh, Her mother has passed away, and she has uh, multiple siblings, I know, but really uh, the one that matters most to her is her sister, Nettie. Mm -hmm. They are kind of inseparable. They're very close. And unfortunately... There is some really dark stuff happening in this story right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, this novel has a very iconic first line, which is, you better not never tell nobody but God. It'd kill your mammy. Yeah. And it's her father telling her, don't tell anyone about what's happening besides God, which is that he's raping her. Yes. And it does kill her mother. Her mother kind of goes crazy with grief and ends up dying. But she has two children by her father, and her father takes these babies away from her when they're just born. This is, like, page two. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was just reading this, I'm like, oh, my oh, God. No. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say, though, like, it, you know, it's page two, and it kind of, it moves through a lot of these points, like, kind of quickly. It doesn't dwell on them. No. It's not like, let me tell you about how, what it's like to be raped, you know? It's sort of like, this is my experience, this is what I'm going through, um, There's kind of a bluntness to it. Yes, you know? yes. I really also like the way that we see kind of this introduced in the film because we just have kind of the movie opening up, focusing on Celia and her sister Nettie and their close relationship, which I think makes a lot of sense because that's the focal point of this story. So we see them like in a field. They're playing this like hand clapping game that'll come back through the through the movie. And they're just running through the field and they just look like kids right yes there's this innocence this childhood that's captured and then you see Celie run out and you see that she's pregnant that was such an amazing amazing shot, shot. Yes. yeah and just to like embody their like child like their their youthfulness yeah in running around and playing these hand clapping games and you're like oh my god she's pregnant yeah and just how awful it, it gives you like that perspective of how this young girl has been robbed of her childhood yes. and her innocence right by this pedophile you know her father and how just horrible it is to see that we have another scene too of her actually giving birth in the movie and the baby being taken away from her which of course is devastating one of many devastating scenes in this movie an interesting fun fact I read was that uh, I think the assistant director actually directed that birthing scene because Steven Spielberg's wife was giving birth to their first child. Oh my god! In like real life, and he had to like leave to <laughs> he go had to do leave that. the yes. room. <laughs> he had to leave the fake birthing room to go to the real one. Yeah. Um. So she has two kids, and they're both taken away from her. And there is a scene that we see in the book and the movie of Celie 
she doesn't really know what's happened to her kids. Like she heard that maybe her dad sold them to somebody or that he killed them. So she doesn't know their fate. Um, But there's a moment later where she's in kind of the general store and she sees this baby that she recognizes as her kid. Yes. And she's kind of trying to talk to the mom about her, asking what her name is and wanting to hold the baby. And it's such a, a sad, devastating scene. And it's unclear whether the mother is suspicious at all or if she's just kind of like weirded out by the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but they end up like they just have this like brief moment together before they part. Yeah. Celie does get the name of this woman and her husband. So she knows like where her kid is. Right. But just the look on her face as she's holding this baby and then like giving her back to this woman is so devastating. And I also want to like praise this movie for casting a young girl to play these pivotal first scenes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because we've talked a lot in our podcast about when they age up actors and then they have an older actor trying to play this young scene or like a young person trying to play an older role and how sometimes it doesn't work. And I think for these moments where you're being impressed on by this is a young girl, right? Yeah. This is a young girl who's had her childhood taken away from her, that's had all these horrible things done to her, who's craving the intimacy of holding her own child and can't. And if we had Whoopi Goldberg here, I know she would do a good job, but I don't think it would hit us as hard. Absolutely not. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I also want to mention, too, in this story, this kind of like pivotal aspect, which is that despite Celie being molested by her father continuously, she is also doing her best to divert his attentions from Nettie. Yeah. Because she has a feeling that maybe he wants Nettie, like, even more. Mm -hmm. And she's trying everything she can to protect her. So she's, like, immediately thrust into this, like, role of, like, protector, you know? And, like, birthing these children. And it's just, like, this horrible situation. But that just really shows the bond she has with Nettie and what she'll do to protect her. Absolutely. We also see pretty quickly after this, maybe a few years in, the passage of time is a little bit unclear in the book, I think. But there's this man who's interested in marrying Nettie. And their father is basically like, no, you can't marry Nettie, but you can marry Celie. And he does make a comment to him like, God fixed her and she can't have children anymore. And I don't know like what the basis in like, medicine or physiology is like with this like that something happened to her maybe because she had those kids so young i don't know yeah um but she's not able to have kids anymore so she does marry him in the book he's referred to constantly as mr blank yeah just like an underscore yeah which like i don't fully understand why it the book does that yeah um it's interesting because we never find out what Celie's like married last name is no no Uh, We eventually find out his name is Albert. There's kind of almost like a reveal of that later when she first hears someone call him Albert. And she's like, who? Albert? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, but we're just going to call him Albert from here on out. And like, this is a grown ass man, right? He's friends with their father or like knows the father, right? Uh, Played by Danny Glover uh, in the film. And yeah, he uh, basically agrees to marry Celie and he takes her away and has she has to leave Nettie behind with the pa. Yeah. And he already has three or three or four children at this time. 
and basically just needs someone to take care of his kids. Yes. His wife has died, and he's just looking for someone to literally take care of his kids, wash his clothes, cook his food. Like, he's looking for a maid and a nanny. He's not really looking for a partner in this situation. It's interesting the book kind of goes into some detail about his first wife and that she was kind of running around with this guy who was her boyfriend who ended up murdering her. Yeah. And she died in her oldest son's arms, Harpo. And so you're just like thinking about the trauma that all of these characters have gone through, right, in their lives. Because Celie comes in and his kids, uh, Albert's kids are immediately like so hostile to her. In fact, the oldest son, Harpo, throws a rock at her head and she's bleeding, right? Like immediately when she first arrives. But then you see like what he's gone through and what he's suffered too. And you kind of have some sympathy for him. Yes, I do want to mention something here. It's 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 a small gripe I had with the film. More at the beginning than I think later on. I actually think the score isn't very appropriate, I'll say. I won't say it's bad. Mm. But there are points like here at the beginning when she's at this house and she has to like clean the house up, right? And taking care of these kids and she's overwhelmed. She's trying to like... Yeah, uh, comb, clean the kitchen and comb stuff. the kids' heads. Yeah, and like um, uh, cook meals and clean and all this stuff. And at points, the score is very almost like bouncy and kind of like playful. Yeah. And like, oh, you know, this like, oh, this house is so dirty and this girl has to take care of it now. And isn't this a situation? I'm like, this is horrifying. I know. I'm <laughs> like, this is like, th- she, I, she's a child bride. Being forced to, like, take care of other children. Yeah. And uh, essentially being raped every night by her husband now. So, like, this is a not great tone for the music. And, I mean, some of that might come from direction of Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. Although I actually heard Steven Spielberg and the guy who composed the music for this kind of butted heads. Yeah, so the guy who did the score for this, Quincy Jones, also was an executive producer on this movie. And... I read that he and Alice Walker were kind of instrumental in getting this movie made and sold. And like the two of them were kind of, I would say, like the the biggest influences behind the direction. of Not like the actual direction of this film, but like kind of how the movie, the how the screenplay came to be and a lot of the decisions in the movie. Yeah. And I think Steven Spielberg clashed with him a lot. He actually, I think Spielberg like kicked him off the set for like, the duration of the filming at one point. Uh, And actually like Spielberg was known for working with John Williams as a composer. And then he worked with uh, Quincy Quincy Jones Jones, and then uh, went back to working with John Williams for years. Yeah. And was like, never again. This was like a blip in his (laughs) career where he worked with someone else. And was like, no, 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 no. I wonder if because the project was almost like so developed by Alice Walker and Quincy Jones when he came on to be director. Maybe. And he kind of maybe felt pressure to, let him do the um, score as well. But I I also read that Quincy Jones kind of between his duties of doing the score and also executive producing that like he had to kind of delegate a lot of the composing to other people. Okay, interesting. So like he was credited for the score, but then in like the Oscar category when they were nominated, there were like all these other composers. Yes, I did read that. Yeah. Yeah, because and I wonder like, If he didn't have his tight control over the score because he was focused on so many other aspects of this movie. Yeah, I don't I don't. It's hard to say, like, what the full picture is. But I will say I do think the score is kind of inappropriate at points. Yeah. Like I said, I don't it didn't stick out to me always. But like, I remember at this specific point, 
when you're watching this like 14 year old girl who was just married off to like a grown man and she's like trying to clean the house and the music's like and you're like this is not how I should feel yeah I'm like so um Nettie ends up running away from home because her father is after her right and she comes to stay with Celie and Albert and Albert is immediately being super weird towards Nettie. He actually had wanted to marry Nettie originally, so it seems like he's kind of into her. And Celie, explicitly in the movie, they have conversations about this and are like, he's going to maybe make a move on you. You might have to leave. There, there's such a sad scene where it's like them in their room talking and laughing about it. And it's almost like, like, you know, they're they're so young. It sounds like two schoolgirls laughing about, like, a teacher or something. Yeah. Instead of this, like, horrible situation that they're in. Instead of this grown man. Yeah, that the one is married to. Uh, this culminates in a scene that we find out later about in the book, but that did happen at this point, where Nettie is, is attacked by Albert, mm-hmm. and he tries to rape her. Yeah, she's able to get away from him and, like, kicks him in the nuts, you know, is able to escape. But then he's like, you have to leave. You have to go. And we have this just horrible, heart-wrenching scene of Celie and Nettie being parted and Albert, like, physically dragging Nettie away. Oh, my God. This scene is so devastating. It's so heartbreaking. But, I mean, it's done so well. Like, it, it just f- is showing you in a physical way what this separation means. You know what I mean? Just, like, the anguish involved and how impactful it is, like, on both of them, but specifically Celie, who's our protagonist, right, moving forward. I mean, it literally feels like something is being ripped, right? Yes. It, it That visual is so strong because they're trying to cling to each other so desperately. And it's just so sad to see them be parted and know that they can't be together at this time. They promise to write to each other. In the movie, we have this whole kind of part where... Nettie teaches Celie to read. In the book, Celie already knows how to read, and so they promise to write to each other. And in the book, Celie specifically tells Nettie about the encounter she had with the woman at the store. She was like, I saw my daughter with this woman who said she was married to this reverend, right? Like, you can go to them for help. Yeah. So she kind of specifically points Nettie towards, like, some good people I know about, and, like, maybe you can check in on my daughter. Right. We get a scene, too, here in the film that I love where Albert is on the porch, and he's having Celie uh, shave him. Mm-hmm. And so Celie is handed this razor, and... She's about to, like, start to shave him, and he, like, catches her hand and says, like, if you cut me, I'll kill you. hmm And it's so tense, but then she starts to shave him. And I love this just to show that power dynamic, that he's so comfortable and cocky. And, or, and it's such a power move to, like, have her do this, right? And I think it sets it up perfectly for this kind of time jump that we get specifically in the movie here mm-hmm. and kind of establishing the role Celie is going to be playing for years to come. Well, and we saw in an earlier scene and we hear about it in the book that he beats her, right? Yes. He hits her and he threatens her. There's a scene later where he is telling her to never go near the mailbox, right? Like he really has this hold over her and she just kind of has to survive. And, There's a part in the movie, too, where Nettie kind of says you have to fight him, like you have to fight. 
And that, and, and Celie's kind of like, I'm just trying to survive, yes. you know? And like how that feels to be trapped in a situation like that when all you can do is just survive. Yeah. I just think that shaving scene is such a good launching off point because, and I love the, the scene in the film too, where she goes off into like by a window yes. to read uh-huh. and we just see her shadow on the wall. And I think there's some shots of like the passage of time and we come back to that shot and you hear the voice change yes. into Whoopi Goldberg. And then she eventually leaves that chair and it's adult Seely now. Yeah, I think this really, it makes a lot of sense. And I like that this is where this happens. And Whoopi Goldberg was like, 28, 30-ish when she made this movie. I wanted to look it up because I was like, she plays young really well. So well. Yeah. Absolutely. And we were talking about that. And I think like, I think a big part of it is her performance. She plays it very timid and shy. Her mannerisms. Yes. And as she changes over the film, she also feels like she's maturing and aging as well. Yeah. So I think it's like a combination of like, yes, hair and makeup. And all of that did really well. I mean, with like Danny Glover, too, and other actors. But then it's also, I think, a lot of the performances involved, too, that really uh, sell that aging up. Definitely. And we see the oldest boy, Harpo, being older now, too. And he has a girlfriend. And who is it? Sophia, played by Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. I love (laughs) the introduction of her just in the film, like arms swinging, marching up. She's just this like... (laughs) force of nature she's this extremely strong-willed person in the book she's described as just being like really beefy just like tall and strong and just kind of like heavy set but Mm -hmm. like uh just as like a powerful woman absolutely and harpo is just kind of like in love with her and infatuated with her and she's actually she she becomes pregnant to their first child together Mm -hmm. and this leads to them getting married but you know Albert Harpo's father is like not happy about this. Like he doesn't like Sophia, doesn't like trust this relationship. There's like a really good meeting scene between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the contrast between Sophia and Celie is very strong. Yes. Right. And we see that in this movie scene specifically. Oh, yeah. I where love she's that. kind of watching Celie and the way Celie behaves and how Albert treats her. Right. Um, and I think this is really interesting to compare them. Um, But the two of them, Harbo and Sophia, are in love. And so they get married. They have kids. They have a little house. And we see the passage passage of time kind of go on here. And it gets to the point, though, that even though they're happy and they're in love, Harpo is like, she doesn't listen to me. She won't mind me. Yeah. I tell her to do something and she kind of does her own thing. Or she doesn't respect me. She doesn't listen to me. And... Like, at one point, Celie tells him, like, why are you making a big deal of yeah. this? Yeah. Right? Like, you love her. She loves you. That's a gift, right? Like, just let that be. But he can't. He can't let it be. And his father, Albert, is like, you have to make her mind you. You have to hit her. You have to beat her. That's the only way to keep a woman in line. Look at Celie, right? And Celie, at one point, Harpo asks her. He's like, how can I make Sophia listen to me? And Celie says, beat her. And this is like such a kind of pivotal moment for Celie. And I love the movie after she says this. It just lingers on her for a while just to really highlight the significance of that moment. Right. And it's really interesting. So like the next time Celie sees 
Harpo, he's all banged up. Yeah. He's got a black eye and like his hand is bandaged and he's like, oh, my mule <laughs> threw me off. I fell off the steps or. Yeah. And like, oh, got all banged up. And, you know, at first, like I laughed. I was like, good. Like, I'm glad uh, Sophia put you in your place, you know, and that like this is over. But it's not. And Harpo can't like leave it alone. He's like determined to physically dominate Sophia. And Sophia won't back down either. And it actually turns into this really horrible, ongoing uh, situation of physical violence between both of them. Yeah, where they're just beating each other up, like, constantly. And it gets to the point where Sophia finally is like, I'm leaving. I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't live through this. And she does confront Celie about how she betrayed her and told Harpo to beat her. And there's a really great moment where she talks about having to fight her whole life, right? Yes, this is such an iconic moment from this movie, this uh, scene from Oprah Winfrey. Yeah. Giving this uh, little monologue. Well, and saying, like, I don't want to have to fight my husband, right? Like, yeah. I don't, I can't live like this. Uh, and it's really sad. And we see Harpo being parted from Sophia and from his kids and, like, we can tell that he's affected by this, but he's pretending like he doesn't care. And this is just like such a tragic moment. And it's not the first moment where we see how deeply and horribly like the patriarchy affects everyone, not just women, right? That men are so deeply impacted by the effects and the structures of patriarchy as well. Like Harpo can't just be happy with Sophia, right? They can't just be together. He has to dominate her. Yeah, I love this depiction that it's like so against his best interest. Yes. You know, Celie being like, what are you doing this for? Like, what is possessing you to do this? And like, it's just, it, it's honestly this example, I think, set by his father, that his father beat and dominate the women in his life. And to him, that's what makes you a man. And if you don't do that, like, are you not a man? And I love, too, in the movie, it's implied a few times that, like, their roles as husband and wife, Harpo and Sophia, are sometimes switched. Like, Harpo will often be taking care of the kids, like, changing their diapers, cooking. like, cooking and cleaning. Like, he actually really likes cleaning, apparently. And Sophia will be, like, up on the roof fucking, like, nailing shingles and, like, doing all this, like, manual labor and splitting wood, right? And it seems like that's what they're both happy doing. But they can't. Ex he can't. Accept he can't it. accept it. Yeah. He can't get over this. Right. Yeah. And it ends up tearing their relationship apart. Yeah. It's really sad. Um, switching gears a bit, though. Um, we've heard about a mythical person called Shug Avery. Yes. Right. She is the woman that Albert has loved his whole life. He wanted to marry her originally, but his own father did not approve of her. She's like a jazz singer. And so he bent to the wishes of his father and married his first wife, the one that was murdered, right? And then ended up marrying Celie. But he's always had a thing for Suge Avery. They've had three kids together. They have this on and off again relationship where he's always like kind of going to see her. And uh, finally, she arrives. Yes, she is horribly ill. <laughs> and so he brings her back to the house to like take care of her. And it's kind of funny because Celie a long time ago saw like a flyer of Suge Avery and was immediately like kind of infatuated with her, like just thought she was like really like beautiful and uh, was just kind of like interested in her. So Suge coming to the house is like, oh, my God, like and she's ill. And so they put her in a room and they decide to like nurse her back to health. Right. Yeah. This leads to a really funny and ridiculous scene in the movie 
where Albert is trying to cook in the kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) He just, like, has no idea where anything is. There's this, like, uh, hanging pot rack mechanism that he, like, bonks his head on, like, multiple times. He's, like, burning himself on the oven. At one point, the oven isn't hot enough. And, like... Celie is just kind of, like, enjoying this. She's, like, sitting back on this rocking chair, just kind of, like, watching him buffoon around. And he grabs a can of kerosene to really get the fire going. (laughs) And there's this great shot back to the rocking chair where she was, and it's now empty and just rocking back and forth. (laughs) Like, she just left and ran. Like, she just fled. (laughs) And then we get this kind of, like, glowing whoomph as (laughs) you hear Albert scream from the, the kerosene. And he comes up with this, like, like pitch black plate of food, which of course gets thrown back at him by Suge uh, into the wall. And it's 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 a very funny and silly scene. But something like that's kind of interesting about this movie is like the humor that it incorporates at points. Yeah, I think it balances the darker and more like hard-hitting and sad scenes with scenes like this that are funny. Yes. And sometimes I felt like a little conflicted. I'm like Albert's kind of a monster. I'm like, should we be like making him seem so buffoonish? Like a nice guy. Yeah. Or um, there's other scenes later where I thought maybe the humor didn't quite mesh with the scene going on. But overall, I will say that I appreciate that this movie has moments of levity and silliness and like a lightness to parts of it. Because movies like this and specifically movies about like black trauma and black struggles uh, can sometimes be really heavy. Really right? dark. Especially when they're like just going full tilt at it, right? And it can be really difficult to get through, even if it's like objectively or arguably a really good movie, right? Yeah. And so part of me appreciates that there is humor in this, right? That it's not just all dark and bad and suffering, <laughs> like, for two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that there can be moments like these. And... Yeah, and then we see Celie cooking a meal for Suge and, like, kind of giving it to her and then waiting outside, like, is she going to throw it at the at the wall, yes. right? Very funny. That plate of food looks like it should be in a, a studio Oh, Ghibli my gosh, movie. it looks so good. It looks so, I mean, just <laughs> overflowing with pancakes and biscuits and, and bacon. bacon and juice and coffee. And, oh, my God, it looked amazing. Yeah, I love this, though, because you'd think that Celie would be jealous, right? Because... Uh, Albert is literally bringing his longtime mistress into their home. But Celia has never cared about Albert. She's never been into him in any way. She just hates his guts and puts up with him. She's way more interested in Suge. She's like, who is this woman that, like, Albert's, like, so into, right? And we can tell right away in the book. Like, we've had several hints, and at this point, it's very clear to us that Celie is a lesbian. Yeah. She is a straight-up lesbian. She talks about how she never looked at men in church. She always looked at women. Yeah. Right? And then she talks about seeing Suge's naked body when she's, like, helping to bathe her when she's sick and just being so, like, in awe of it. And, like, flustered, kind yeah, of. Yeah, and affected by it. And and she thinks about, like, the two of them together. And she's not upset about him having sex with her. She's upset with, like, her having sex with him. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, it's such an interesting and f- kind of just almost fun dynamic of, like, this married couple who have, like, absolutely no 
sexual like chemistry, chemistry at all and then this woman shows up and they're both like into her yeah and she has a history with the one but the other one she's like connecting to more emotionally yeah and this leads to like a friendship between suge and seely and seely just kind of takes care of suge like tends to her there's a very sweet scene of her like brushing her hair and like humming to her and suge really kind of comes back to life from this really tough illness under Celie's friendship and care. Yes, because Albert is totally useless. Yes. Much. <laughs> uh, around this time, Harpo is coping with his wife and children leaving him as any man would by turning his house into a bar. Into a juke joint. Into a juke joint. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's classy. There's music there. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he just is tearing out. He, he's totally just overhauling his entire house and he has a friend who plays, I forget what they call it. I don't know what it is. It sounded like guitar, like box string or something. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, and he just like turns his entire home into a juke joint. And <laughs> at first it's not doing well, at least in the book we're told this. And he decides to ask Suge, now that she's feeling better, if she would consider singing there. Mm-hmm. And she's maybe like reluctant at first, but then she starts singing there. And this draws like the entire town uh, <laughs> of, of black folks anyway to the juke joint. And it's immediately like popping. A huge success. Yeah. Yeah. We get Suge sing- singing a song dedicated to Seely, which is very sweet. I love this scene in the movie how, like, happy Celie is in this moment. And also, huge shout-out to the costume department, because the outfit that Celie is wearing immediately stands out. She looks like she's at a funeral, right? Yes. And, like, one of the women even, like, laughs at them, or laughs at her, and uh, she's just so isolated. But then when Suge starts singing this song, like... She lights up. Yes, and the crowd of people parts, and it's just such a great moment. I love this. Uh, We see Sophia come back to her old home with a new man, right? (laughs) Yep. She's there. Harpo is immediately like, oh, my God. Harpo has a new girl, too, uh, nicknamed Squeak. Her real name is Mary Agnes, but she kind of squeaks when she talks, so they call her Squeak. She's kind of got a high-pitched, unique voice. Yeah. And so, but, like, Harpo is talking to Sophia, and at first there's maybe some tension But then they seem to kind of like make up and they actually start dancing together. Yeah. And then Squeak shows up and is like, what the fuck? My man. Who is this bitch? (laughs) And I, this is so funny in the movie. And and it's funny, although I'm like, are we making too much lightness out of like the violence, which is such a big aspect of the book, right? But Squeak is obviously picking a fight (laughs) that her ass can't. (laughs) She's writing a check that her ass can't. What's that term? Cash. Cash. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, She slaps Sophia. And then in the film, like the piano player just like shuts the piano and leaves. (laughs) And like like, everyone creates this like 10 foot radius around them. And Sophia just winds up and just punches Squeak across the face. In the book, she like knocks out like two of her teeth. Two of her teeth. And in the film, it, like, turns into, like, an entire brawl, like, in the in the juke joint. Yeah. Just, like, very, it, it's kind of silly, but I think it works pretty well in, in the film. Yes. Celie wants to watch the fight, but ends up going back with Suge to the house. And we have a scene where Suge is dressing Celie up in her outfits, right? I loved this. I know. And we have this really sweet moment, too, where 
Suge is saying, why are you hiding your smile? And we've seen, this is part of the mannerisms that Whoopi Goldberg uses to show her youth and to look younger in these scenes where she, every time she smiles or laughs, she just covers her mouth up. Yes. Right? And, you know, there was a scene, I think, earlier in the movie where her dad said something about having an ugly smile. Oh, yeah. And you know that that's been in her head her whole life. And we have Suge here saying, you have a beautiful smile. Like, stop hiding it. And then we see Whoopi Goldberg smiling. And it's so sweet. Suge is literally, like, restraining her arms so she can't cover her smile. But it's, like, it's such a wonderful moment. And a, a great addition to the book in terms of, like, this mannerism that does a great job of representing her personality. Yeah. Because reading the book, I was kind of wondering how the movie would portray her because early on she's so timid and passive and everything that we know about her that's going on is through these letters and kind of like her internal monologue. But in terms of action, like she is an active protagonist, but like, she's not like this extroverted character. And I'm like, I wonder how this will play on screen. Like, are they going to have to change it? But like, I think they do such a good job of, I mean, Whoopi Goldberg and her performance, but then the writing, too, of conveying this timidness and this shyness, but like still making you root for her as a viewer. Yeah, I really liked this scene. And in the movie, we have this happen here. In the book, this happens like sometime later. But basically, Suge and Celie begin a romantic relationship and start sleeping together. Yes. Uh, It's a scene in the film where they're kind of, Kissing each other in a very, like, testing each other in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, she'll giving her a kiss on the cheek and then Celie turning her face for, like, another kiss. And then, and, you know, it kind of, as it continues, the camera kind of, like, pans away to, I think, like, a wind chime or some type of ornament. And watching it, I was like, okay, I don't think you can argue this is anything other than a romantic relationship between the two of them. yeah. I think the issue is that, like, even though their relationship throughout the rest of the film is so strong. There's no allusion to romance. No, you could kind of forget about this. Yeah. Like, I, you could easily walk away from this film, you know, having liked it, but then been like, oh, remember that scene in the middle where they were just kissing each other a lot? That was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can kind of write it off because it's not brought up again. Right. We don't see them being intimate with each other in any way. And like. I get it, right? Yes. It's 1985. I mean, we still struggle with this today in movies, right? Absolutely. Showing queer relationships, but I do think it's it's unfortunate, right? Steven Spielberg has gone on record and said that he it's his biggest regret, one of his biggest regrets in his like whole catalog of films, but specifically with this movie too, that he wasn't like braver in depicting more of an overtly queer relationship. Yeah. He he really regretted kind of restraining himself because he was worried that it would be controversial, that it would hurt the box office, that people maybe wouldn't see it once people knew, like, the content of the movie. But he does wish that he had, had just really committed to it more. Yeah, and I think this does go back to a conversation that a lot of people had at the time and are still having now, which is like, was he the right person to direct this film? Which is a super valid question. You know, and I do think he brings something to this material, which is like making it 
a little more marketable, right? Making it a little more appealing to a wider audience, like bringing these funny moments in. Not like the book doesn't have those funny moments, but really kind of drawing them out. Yes. Right? And being able to portray them in like a really smart way. I mean, I think in terms of filmmaking, there's a really, like a lot of really good choices here. I think the movie is like well done and well made. But then when you go to the material and you're like, we're talking about the like struggles of black folks. We're talking about this queer love story. And you're like, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, and like I, I had mentioned before, too, he hadn't really done a movie of this kind of tone. Depth. And depth before. And I think he was super uncertain when he was first approached about doing it. He's like, he was literally like, I don't know if I should be doing this movie. Like, I don't know anything about what it's like to be a black woman in the deep south at this time. Right. Yeah. But I think I think as one of the producers talking to him was like, I mean, you made a movie about like a puppet alien. Right. <laughs> and like people loved it and you were able to like create emotion through that. And like, I think you could argue that maybe comparing the history of black people to E.T. isn't like maybe the, the Not most the best sensitive. Metaphor. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think he appreciated like what they were saying. And I think there's some truth to it that like, I think good movies, despite who they're about or even who they're made with in mind, are still universal in most ways. Like yeah. most people are still able to go see them and like connect with them. So I, I, I do think that like someone like Steven Spielberg is still capable of bringing authentic feelings and emotion. And I will say that, like, despite him restraining himself a bit, maybe in the queer relationship, he doesn't shy away from a lot of other things that are like pretty tough and unpalatable, like yeah. a girl being raped by her father, like within the first five minutes of the movie. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think he does commit to a lot of the harder subject matter. So, yeah, you know, I think he actually I do think he does a good job in this movie. I just think, like, had he been a little less fearful of tackling certain certain topics, maybe people wouldn't be as, like, annoyed about him directing this, you know? I agree. I also think it's worth mentioning, and we'll discuss it in our bonus episode, that the uh, musical movie was directed by a black man, right? Yeah. But still a man. Right. You know? So, like, we have a, a story that's very focused on a queer female black perspective, and, like, we're still not really getting that in that movie either. But it's, like, a valid question to be, like, well... How just, specific should we well, be? Well, right, exactly. Just because you get a, a queer black woman to direct it, I mean, doesn't mean that they even might be the best fit, right? It's, like, it's not like a... These demographics aren't a monolith where, like, no. every person is able to, like... That's the, the universal experience for that type of person, right? Exactly, yeah. So, and we are having this conversation this year with Killers of the Flower Moon and Martin Scorsese directing that, right? Absolutely. So it's still something that is coming up a lot and is it's a really tough subject to discuss because there's a lot of nuance involved yeah, with it. Yeah, I don't think there's one right answer, and I think it really depends on how each person like approaches adapting material like this, right? Yes. And how sensitive they are and how thoughtful they are and how much research and kind of help and experience they have, you know, and, and bringing in other perspectives as well. Well, and honestly, the quality of the end product is a big oh, factor, yeah. too. Like, if the movie sucks, then people are like, I knew it's because of him. Spielberg couldn't do it, yes, right? But, yeah. like, <laughs> overall, if the movie's pretty good, it's like, well, I guess he, you know, maybe. He kind of did it. And I will say that, like, I was really worried going into this movie just with that aspect in mind. But I walked away being like, you know what? 
Pretty solid. Pretty, pretty good. With everything considered. Yeah. It's unfortunately, though, time for Suge to leave. Yes. She's got to hit the road back to touring and singing and doing her thing. And Celie and Albert are very sad to see her go. In the movie, it's kind of implied that Celie wants to leave with Suge. But she doesn't work up the courage to actually ask to go. No. And it's a great moment of like seeing Albert there kind of like watching her as she's trying to like muster up the courage and not able to. Mm-hmm. Let's switch gears here to Sophia. Yes. So Sophia is raising her and Harpo's children. Is she still with the same guy? Yeah. OK. Yeah. That we met at the juke joint. There's an incident where they are in town. She's with her kids. And this white woman comes comes up and starts fussing over the children and like, oh, aren't they so cute and they're so clean and you've done such a good job with them. Yeah. And Sophia is just <laughs> mustering up all her strength to like just not say something and just be like, oh, thank you. I appreciate this. And finally, the woman is like, would you come to our house and be our maid? And Sophia says, hell no. (laughs) The dam has broken. She can't restrain it anymore. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, this is the mayor's wife. And the mayor hears Sophia say this and is like, what did you say to my wife? And she says, hell no. And he slaps her. And we all know what happens when Sophia gets slapped. Because we've already seen it. She punches him. And I think this scene is like really, it's so devastating and well done in the film, too. Because, like, this crowd gathers, and I love Oprah's performance of screaming to the the guy that she's with, because I think it's different in the film. And she's like, get my kids out of here. Get my kids out of here. Yeah. Because she knows, like, I could very easily be killed right now. Yeah, she's about to be lynched, right? And if she was a man, she probably would have been, right? The book is a lot more, I think, devastating with what happens to her. Absolutely. She's literally beaten to within an inch of her life. Like, it looks like she's going to die. The movie just kind of shows her getting hit once and, like, kind of going down. And then we see her beat up afterwards looking bad. Um, But she's really, like, just kicked and and beaten to, to a pulp by the police at this point. And she's in prison. And her family and everyone is actually worried that she's going to die in prison because the conditions are so horrible and she's being, I think, continuously beaten and hurt. They kind of come up with this plan, though, which is only in the book. The movie doesn't really touch this, where they're saying, "Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to the warden and say, oh, you haven't broken Sophia. Like, she's a strong woman. She likes being in prison. You know what would really break her, though, is if she had to actually be the maid to the mayor because she didn't want to do that in the first place. And that would really, like, that would show her, right? Yes. So they send Squeak in. And I forget because she has some kind of, like, family... So the warden is her uncle. That's right. Because she's been described as like kind of a yellow girl. Like her father was a white man kind of running around with her mom on the side. And so she kind of knows that the warden is her uncle. And so they send her to be like, hey, remember me? Remember when you visited and you saw that I looked like your brother, you know, and like I'm your niece. And I'm going to tell you this story about Sophia. And the plan works they do send Sophia to be the mayor's maid and they get her out of the prison. But unfortunately, the warden rapes Squeak. God, such a sad moment. And I don't know how I feel about it because I don't know if it adds 
anything to squeak as a character. It's Agreed. kind of it's kind of like never brought up again. I mean, I did like this aspect of everyone coming together to figure out how to help Sophia. And like even Albert as a character, right, was like joining in on this and trying to help. And like yeah. you feel like he's being humanized here. And even Squeak helping after Sophia knocked out two of her teeth <laughs> yeah. was going to these lengths to help her. And it really showed you the sense of like community. Uh, that when it matters, they're coming together. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And I really loved that aspect of it. I just think the sexual assault of Squeak was like very. Maybe too much. I, th- I think so. Yeah. Especially since it's not really brought up again. It's not yeah. really part of her character. Um, so Sophia becomes a maid to this family. And yes, it's better than being in prison and, and literally being beaten or like starved to death. But it really breaks her spirit, which is so sad to see because Sophia is this larger than life woman, both physically and just in her presence. Right. And to see her be beaten down and to be so subservient to this, you know, white couple and this white family, there's a comment I don't know if it's in just in the book or in the movie where she says like, oh, I tried to be like you, Celie. Yes. Ugh. And you're like, damn. Oh, my God. That was kind of like a diss to her, but also like really sad at the same <laughs> well, time. I, I loved that from an examination of like what it means to be a black woman at this time. And like, you know, we know that Celie admires Sophia for her strength. But then again, that kind of made her a target and brought problems about, you know, and that like in some ways, Celie's like tactics of surviving were better. Yeah. And kind of helped Sophia during this time. Yeah. So she is. So Sophia is now the 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 nanny and the maid of the mayor. Mm-hmm. And in the film, we get this scene and, and it's true in the book, too, that. Sophia knows how to drive and she's helping the mayor's wife learn how to drive. Oh my God, this woman is crazy. Unhinged. But we get this scene in the film where like she's doing this driving lesson and it's in the town and like she's like almost running over people and people are (laughs) diving out of the way and it's very wacky. But this is kind of her first look at Sophia since the incident. And she's like so beaten down, like her one eye is like drooping now. Mm -hmm. She's just like, like gone gray. She's gone gray. And so, like, the humor of this, like, wacky car incident didn't jive. This is one of those moments where I'm like, I don't think the humor works. Now, maybe there was a scene earlier that was cut. Because I think it's part of it is, like, just seeing her for For the the first first time. time. And maybe if we had a scene before that. Where we saw what Sophia was like now. Yes, it wouldn't be so jarring and weirdly disconnected. But regardless, I it made the scene not totally work for me. Yeah. And she's separated from her family at this time. And she has all these kids, but she's not allowed to see them ever. And there's one moment where she's allowed to see her kids. And it's been, like, five to eight years, depending on the book or the movie. And this white woman that she works for is like, I'm going to drive you to your family's house. You haven't seen them in this many years. I'm being so great. Aren't I the best, right? (laughs) And so she brings Sophia to her house. And it's this very, like, sweet but also really sad reunion because these kids are like, who are you, right? Yeah. Her own children. And it's Christmas and she's just going into the house. And then she hears outside this crazy white woman not being able to back her car the fuck up out of the driveway. It's like stuck in fifth gear and she's like grinding the gears. And I think in the book, she just ruins the car and she needs to get a ride back and it kind of ruins the evening. I really love how it plays out in the film, though, where she just can't get control of the car. And there's all these black men outside 
and they're trying to help her and be like, hey, 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 like, don't do that. Like, back up. And she's panicking because she's surrounded by black people, which is like terrifying to her. And she's freaking out. And they're like literally trying to jump on the car and like (laughs) stop her from like driving into a tree. And finally, Sophia comes out and like, God, they were just inside. And she was just saying like. She was taking off her coat, Ian. Yes. Taking off the coat and having to put the coat back on. I That moment, yeah, of her p- shouldering the coat back on. And she goes out and she just like calm this white woman down. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And she's like, well, like such and such can ride back with you. And she's like, I can't be in the car with a colored man. And she's like, all right, well, what about. And she, like, names, like, a sister or something. Yeah. She's like, no. And it just, she's like, all right. And Sophia just has to get back in the car with her mm-hmm. and go back. And go back. And, like, there's something so real and just so devastating about this scene, right? Yeah. Like, I don't, just the way it plays out of, like, it's already sad because she hasn't seen her family in so long. But she can't even have that. No. And it's almost like, is it even worth it? Mm-hmm. Like, if if I'm still dealing with this, how can I even see my family? How yeah. can I even have a relationship, right? Yeah, it's really sad. And this is like a scene that I think easily could have been cut from the film, but I think is so great at showing where Sophia is at, like, emotionally at this point. Yeah, and showing what it was like for so many Black Americans who were basically in this servitude position to white yes. people, right? And how horrible it was for them. I mean, Sophia wasn't able to ever see her family. And it, this is an extreme version, right? She's basically like in prison, but like not quite anymore, right? No. But it's just really, it's just so sad. At this point, Suge returns. Yes. And I really love when she comes back it's not only Albert this time rushing to see her, but it's also Celie. Yes. Like, they're both, like, out of bed trying to get dressed. They're excited, yes. right? They're both excited to see her. She brings a husband, though, Grady. <laughs> Useless Grady. Uh, this is actually in the book where Suge and Celie start to have sex and begin a romantic relationship. So clearly the husband is not having much of an effect on Suge. No. <laughs> but while Suge is staying with them... Uh, Celie kind of talks to her about her sister Nettie and is like, I think about her all the time. Like, she's never written me, so I think she must be dead. And Suge is the one that kind of figures out, like, oh, my God, I think I know what's happening. Like, I think I've seen Albert with a letter from your sister. Like, a lot of weird postage stamps on it. Yeah. So Suge manages to get a hold of a letter, and it it is from her sister Nettie. And they read the letter and realize that there's probably years worth worth of letters somewhere. And they Mm -hmm. find them in Albert's room. Yeah. I mean, it's like who knows how many letters, but just like a a, a shit ton of them. Mm -hmm. And it's so devastating to Celie. She's like, he has been keeping these for me for so many years. I thought Nettie was dead. Out of spite. Out of spite. Yes. Right. Out of anger. It's just so horrible. And we have this whole section of the book where. Celie is reading this collection of letters and getting caught up on what's been happening with Nettie's life. And we have some montages in the film as well of showing C- or showing Nettie and showing what happened to her. We're going to just talk about part of it here because it's kind of a large chunk. But basically, Nettie followed Celie's advice and went to that couple who had Celie's daughter. And she shows up and she sees that not only do they have Celie's daughter, but they have her son as well. And so she shows up and is kind of like, I need help. Ends up being kind of like their maid slash nanny for their kids. 
And the two of them are actually missionaries and on their way to Africa. Yes. And unfortunately, someone else they were supposed to go with had to cancel. They got married. And so they need someone else to go with. So they invite Nettie. And so Nettie is off to Africa to become a missionary with this family. (laughs) And she kind of talks about, like, I think God wanted me to come here. I think I'm supposed to watch over your kids. Like, they don't know that I'm your aunt, but I can, like, take care of them for you, right? Yes. It feels kind of destined that way. We get some really, really cool scenes here in the movie, though, as Celie is reading these letters and getting caught up on what's happening to Nettie in in all this time that she's missed. And we see Africa and Nettie's life intersecting with Celie's life in Georgia. The way these cuts happen are so good. Like, uh, it'll be Celie reading these letters in a room, and the roof is leaking and dripping into various pans, and then that cuts to someone in Africa playing, like, a percussive instrument like Mm -hmm. that, right? Or at one point, she's by the water reading it. She hears a rustling and turns around, cuts to tall grass, and then an elephant is coming out, right? Like, yeah. And that that when it connects or when it cuts isn't clear. And at one point, she's on the porch, and there's this huge sunset in front of her, and then it's Africa. And it's all just, it's not like cheap, or I don't want to say cheap, but like special effects stuff. It's just interesting cuts. Yeah. And really thought out filmmaking and this montage is just phenomenal and it really portrays how immersed Celie is in these letters right this is literally a window into her sister's life that she never knew she'd have access to and so it's so beautiful and uh Albert kind of like jerks her out of this and is like being really harsh to her about it and at this point Celie is like I'm gonna kill him (laughs) she's like he's kept these letters from me And I've taken his abuse for so long. Like, something in her kind of snaps here. This is, I think, the best scene in the whole film. It's so expertly put together. And this scene is, like, alluded to in the book, but it's not, like, built up in the same way. But, like, we have Albert on the porch again, and he asks Celie to shave him. Yeah. And she begins to uh, sharpen the blade, and that cuts to someone in Africa playing an instrument again, and we get this, like, African, like, music swelling in. And simultaneously, Suge is somewhere, and she asks, like, oh, where's Celie? And someone's like, oh, she's gonna shave Albert on the porch. (laughs) And at first, Suge is like, oh, okay. She's, like, doing her nails. And then she just kind of, like, stops. She gets, like, this sixth sense. Mm -hmm. Like, something's gonna happen. Yeah. And so then this part (laughs) of, like, Celie going up to Albert with this blade is intercut with Suge running through the grass trying to get there in time. With these scenes in Africa. Yes. And like in the, in the African scenes, there's like a... Um, a ritual a, a ritual going on and she's running and the music is building and you're like, oh my God, like it's so <laughs> good. And it ends with Suge arriving in time and catching Celie's hand and says something like, oh, that blade's pretty dull, <laughs> Celie. I don't think you should shave him with that. But like the the tension and the momentum of the editing and the music and everything just falls into place like perfectly. It's so good. I really love this scene so much. It, it's so dramatic and it's so exciting. Yes. And the fact that it doesn't end with anything actually happening, I don't think matters because it's more about like what's going on in this dynamic 
dynamic. One that juxtaposes so well with the earlier scene where he has her shave him. Yes. And it's like all the power in his hands, right? And now she's like, these letters have kind of like woken up something in her and knowing that like Nettie is alive and you see this like change in her and having the same situation occurring but differently is like perfect. So good. Um, And then we have Sophia coming back finally to the family for good. She served her time, literally. It's been like 11 years since she's been able to be with her family. She comes back to her home and to her family and Harpo and Squeak and her sister and her sister's husband have been raising her kids this whole time. And she comes back and a lot of her kids are grown and have like moved on. Some of them are still in the house, but they don't like know who she is anymore. It's so sad. And she's just such a shell of herself, right? Like just sitting at the table. Uh, Oprah plays both of these aspects of Sophia like so perfectly. But uh, Suge interrupts their Easter lunch or Easter dinner with news that she is going back to Memphis and Celia is coming with her. Yes. And Miss, and I was going to say, and Mr. Uh, Albert is immediately like, the hell she is. Yeah. <laughs> and this begins like the such an, another amazing scene in this movie. And it's it so much of it is just verbatim from the book. But it's Celie finally just standing up to Albert. And she is just like, I fucking hate you. <laughs> like you're like a dirty dog. She's like, I hate your children. <laughs> Like your children all suck. And I love that Harpo is there. there and he's like, hey, what the hell? And, yeah. And she's just like, I have like wasted my life with you and I'm leaving. Yeah. I really love what she says here, like about how he's treated her. Right. Yeah. And that you kept my like, uh, I was going to say Celia. You kept Nettie's letters from me. Yeah. Right. And you did this to me, which is so spiteful and horrible. And then she says that thing about your kids, right? Your kids were awful. I hated them. They hated me. (laughs) Harpo's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you messed them up. Harpo ruined his relationship with Sophia right here, sitting right here because of you and what you did to him. And it's your fault. And Sophia's like, oh, there's some truth in that. Like... (laughs) Sophia. So Sophia's like be, like waking up yes. from this like speech that Celie's giving. And I love she's like loading her plate up she with food. She suddenly starts eating like with a fury. <laughs> she's like, oh, yeah, this is great. Like one in the film, she gives a really great speech, too, about like when Celie helped her one day in the store when she was working for the mayor's wife and Celie kind of helped her like get food and stuff. And like this scene, I think, was like largely improvised by Oprah. Oh, really? And like just saying like when you helped me, like I knew God existed in that moment and just thanking her. And it's such just overall a wonderful scene. And I love just like every time Albert says something (laughs) to Celie about her leaving like she just slaps him back immediately like at one point he's like well I'm not giving you any money and she's like I've never asked you for a damn thing she's like, I didn't even ask for your hand in marriage <laughs> she's been saving all the good comebacks <laughs> for this moment right it's been like 20 years or yes. something I just have to read this part which is a little bit later in the book but this happens in this scene in the movie where Albert is kind of like what are you going to do in Memphis? Like, you're dumb. You're stupid. You're ugly. Like, nobody cares about you. You're, like, like so awful. I shouldn't have even married you. He's just putting her down so much. And then she she comes in and she says, I curse you, I say. What that mean, he say. I say, until you do right by me, everything you touch will crumble. He laugh. 
Who you think you is, he say. You can't curse nobody. Look at you. You black, you poor, you ugly, you woman. Goddamn, he say. You nothing at all. Until you do right by me, I say. Everything you even dream about will fail. I give it to him straight, just like it came to me. And it seemed to come to me from the trees. Whoever heard of such a thing, said mister. I probably didn't whoop your ass enough. Every lick you hit me, you will suffer twice, I say. Then I say, you better stop talking because all I'm telling you ain't coming just from me. Look like when I open my mouth, the air rush in and shape words. Shit, he say. I should have locked you up. Just let you out to work. The jail you plan for me is the one in which you will rot, I say. She'll come over to where us talking. She take one look at my face and say, Seely. Then she turn to Mr. Stop, Albert, she say. Don't say no more. You're just going to make it harder on yourself. I'll fix her wagon, said Mr., and spring toward me. A dust devil flew up on the porch between us. Fill my mouth with dirt. The dirt say, anything you do to me, already done to you. I feel Shug shake me. Seely, she say, and I come to myself. I'm poor, I'm black, I may be ugly and can't cook, a voice say to everything listening, but I'm still here. Amen, says Shug. Amen, amen. <laughs> I love how something kind of possesses yes, her. Yes. Like and she's, it's almost like biblical. Yes, it's almost like supernatural. Yes. And it's kind of like freaking like everyone out. Yes, everyone's like, oh my God. <laughs> uh, like Shug is like, stop talking, Everything Albert. you touch will crumble. Yeah, like everything, every time he comes up with a retort, she just keeps hexing him more. And I love in the film too, like, Whoopi Goldberg, like, holding her hands out, like, her fingers out, jabbing them towards Albert. And he's like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's great. I love it. It's wonderful. I also want to talk about kind of the spiritual message of this book. And it's partially addressed in the movie as well. But it's definitely, like, a bigger theme in the book, I think. Because this whole time, Celie is talking to God. And she's writing these letters to God. Dear God. But when she finds out that her sister has written her this whole time, she's kind of shaken in her faith, I think, a lot. And there's a line where she said, dear Nettie, I don't write to God no more, I write to you. Yeah. Right? Where she's like, I've kind of given up on God, I'm writing to you instead. And she's talking to Suge a lot about God and her perception of God. And they kind of have this whole conversation about who God is, what God looks like. And Suge is like, who do you picture when you think of God? And Celie's like, I mean, a white man with a beard, right? Yeah. And Shug is kind of like, well, that's what white people want us to think. But I think God is really something that's inside all of us. And that is like something that we're born with and something that's in nature. It's very yeah. much a like spiritual, very kind of general belief in the God of the God of nature, the God of love, the God, the divine in us. Yes. And I really love this conversation and like the way I would paraphrase it. And I think these are kind of my own words, but I think it's accurate to like the conversation in the story is that like, you know, in Christianity, you're told like we're made in God's image. But I think this book is arguing that we made God in our image. Yes. And that God is, you know, not only a man, but white in most depictions in Christianity Because white men basically rule the world. And this book is kind of like God, I think, transcends any depiction or any like human characterizations that we could put to them. Right. Like whether through gender or race or anything like that. And like just applying it back to like nature and our experiences 
And like, it's a lot of things we love, but also a lot of things we hate. And I really loved, you know, religion comes up throughout the story in a number of ways. So it's like a, a recurring topic. And I really love this angle to it, right? This explanation of it. Yeah. And this is where we get the title of the book where Shug says something like, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. And then she says later, Yes, Ely, everything want to be loved. Us sing and dance, make faces, and give flower bouquets, trying to be loved. You ever notice the trees do everything to get attention we do except walk? So kind of this idea of like all of nature wanting love, us wanting love, and it just being this like divine thing. And Alice Walker specifically prefaced this book with kind of an invocation to the divine in herself and in everyone. So I do think this is a very like personal topic for her that she yeah. put into this story. Yeah, and I I it all it, it all ties together so expertly with like the themes of like race and gender and how we see ourselves and like trying to like find a power within yourself, yes. you know, um, mm-hmm. whether through religion or like outside of it. So I, I really loved this aspect of the story. And I think talking about religion, this segues us into going back to Nettie's story. Uh, the, the book kind of feeds us this story gradually throughout and the film condenses all of it into like that one kind of montage. Yeah. But it's a really dense and intricate portion of the book. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, Sometimes I was like, do we need this in this in the book? It right? did dip a few times. It gets yeah. very in depth with Nettie and the family she's with, Samuel, Corrine and the children, where they're with the Alinka tribe and they're, you know, teaching them. Um, they have form a school. They're trying to convert them to Christianity. Right. But there's like so many aspects of this culture that they don't understand. And they end up being there for a long time. And at one point, this road is being built. And at first, it seems like it's going to be good news for the Alinka people. But then they find out that it's basically just colonialism, right? Um, Whoever owns this land is building a road right through their village, eventually displaces this whole um, tribe of people and community, puts them on some like horrible land, makes them like pay to get water. And it's just like a horrible example of indigenous tribes being displaced for this greed, right? Yes. Capitalism. I really kind of like this analogy of the road, though, because at first it's like, oh, it's just colonialism, just like plowing through and like taking advantage of people, right? But there's also this aspect, too, of like, it's also just the changing of time, like this kind of inevitable, especially like going into the modern age and like the world becoming so much more interconnected. Because it's like, the tribe isn't perfect either. It's no. like they have a lot of backwards views, especially relating to like men and women and gender and stuff. And those are starting to be challenged more like within the tribe and kids growing up within the tribe are like less interested in like tri- tribal customs and more like wanting like bicycles and to be dressing more European and that sort yeah. of thing. And like not that that's good or anything, but like it's in some ways just different and I think this relates back to everything going on with Seely because I think we're also witnessing just the cultural change that comes with time, right? And like women being able to do more and black people being able to do more and things just kind of like transforming slowly. And even though there's so much like struggle and difficulty and still aspects that can be bad relating to that, uh, like I liked reading this part 
these portions from Nettie's perspective and being able to tie it back in to the main plot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, we also have Corrine, the missionary's wife, dying at this part of the story. The movie doesn't really dwell on it. It's kind of like, oh, she was really sad about what was happening and died. Yeah. (laughs) The book is very much more in depth about how Corrine kind of started to get really suspicious of Nettie and be like, why do my kids look like you? Right. And think that Nettie had an affair with her husband and then her husband tried to be like, look at these kids that I found. Yeah, because the right? wife is like, I know I didn't birth my kids. Yeah. My husband just came with them one day. Yeah, and was like, these kids need a home. Like, God sent them to us. So she, and it's really sad because um, Nettie had this very close relationship with Corrine for a time. And then it kind of sours between them. And even on her deathbed, Nettie is trying to tell her the truth about, finally the truth about who she is and what happened. And she's actually trying to get Corrine to remember that scene in the store where she meets Celie. And she's like, remember that girl you met who held your girl and like probably didn't want to let her go, right? Like, that's my sister. Like, sh- that was your ch- your children's real mother. And I came here because she told me about you, right? And I came to watch over the kids and I never wanted to like take your place in their life. And Right before she dies, she does kind of accept the truth, but it's still really sad that she just, like, lets the suspicion kind of ruin her life. Yeah, and I mean, you kind of also understand why she was maybe suspicious, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Corrine dies, and there's another character, Tashi, that's kind of important. She is a girl around the age of the daughter uh, of the missionaries, and but she's from the tribe, and she's very smart and you can kind of see her being, I don't want to say influenced by the missionary family, but like she gets re- along really well with the daughter, uh, Olivia. Yeah. And they're like inseparable. And you can tell like she's so smart and the missionary family is like trying to get the tribe to like, they're like, why don't you educate her or like agree to us teaching her? Because she's so smart. She could be a doctor. And they're just like, fuck no, she's a woman. Yeah. Like... Of course not. That's, like, against, like, our whole way of life, essentially. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a lot of, like, push and pull around Tashi. Tashi. Yeah. Yeah, and I think she represents, like, this tribe, like we were talking about earlier, right? Like, being modernized, but also, like, losing their cultural beliefs. And, like, which cultural be- cultural beliefs should, like, go, right? Yes. Or, like, which ones should we hold on to? And one of those is this, like, ritual face-cutting procedure, that a lot of the younger kids in the tribe don't want to do anymore. But as their rights and their land and their freedoms are being stripped away, the tribe is like clinging to these like vestiges of the past, right? Because they have nothing else. And so they're like forcibly marking their kids up, like they're kind of overpowering them and doing it to them against their will. And Tashi actually volunteers to do it herself, Because she feels that push and pull between the tribes. And it's actually referenced very indirectly, but I think it's enough to know for sure that she also undergoes female genital mutilation. Yeah, I wanted to, yeah, bring that up too. And God, it's so, it's so devastating. And it's implied too that like, after going through this, that she maybe like regrets her decision. Yeah. And I mean, you can imagine like the pressure put on her, right? But like, Yeah, I think her story is so interesting in terms of, like, representing, like, yeah, this tribe with, like, customs. And in some ways, I think, you know, this missionary family is from America, but they're black and they're familiar with, like, oh, the hardships of 
slavery and the enduring legacy of that in America and the struggles it brings to their daily lives. And I think in some ways, you know, they were wanting some kind of what closure or epiphany or something kind of like emotional from them coming to Africa only to find like, oh, it's still imperfect people, right? Yeah. It's still just people. And they're not really like welcoming us home, right? They're no. like, why are you so weird and different? Like if you're supposed to have come from Because they just showed up. You know, yeah. these missionaries just show up and they're like, all right, we're here now. Like we want to. And they're like, I guess you can do this. Like whatever, you know. Yeah. But they at one point they um, leave uh, at the, this this tribe to go to uh, England to like plead for help because like this tribe is just being wiped out by this road production and like these plantations that are being put up. And of course they get absolutely no help. Mm -hmm. But while they're there, uh, Samuel, the father is kind of reflecting on their time and is just like, what did we even do? What, what did we accomplish? He's like, I don't think they really ever cared about us being there. Like it didn't really matter to them. And like, even though we were there and teaching them about like our Christian God, like all this shit happened and, like, that God was basically useless to them. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah. it brought them no comfort. It brought them no peace. And I thought it was really great that this book was uh, putting a, cr- a a critical lens on the work of missionaries who go to other countries like this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, what do you really accomplish sometimes, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's important to want to do good work and to help people, but, like... Why are you doing it? Who is it for? Yes. You know? You're not just helping them for the sake of helping them. You're helping them to be like, let me teach you about God and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like, there's uh, there's a demand there as well. Yeah, and what are their actual needs, right? Yes. Where do they actually need help? And do they need help, you know? I mean, if they could have stopped this road from happening, that would have been a help, right? But, like, nobody can stop something like that, right? No. Because it's a money thing, and it's colonialism, and it's just racism it's so many factors against them yeah i really liked this part and i thought it was interesting to reflect on it i definitely know that the movie had no time to get into this no i i totally understand why it tried to just kind of condense it and i think spielberg did a good job of showing what this what these letters in this story meant to Celie. Yes, and which how is the it focus. Ch- absolutely, and how it changed her. But as far as the book goes, like, there were some slumps with this part, but I did find it really interesting how the author was able to suddenly introduce this storyline in Africa and how she interestingly wove it into the main plot thematically and, like, yeah. kind of drew all these parallels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was really interesting. Meanwhile... Seely is making pants. <laughs> yes. Fulfilling her lifelong passion of making pants. <laughs> she goes with Suge to Memphis and is living with Suge and just kind of enjoying not being a slave to Albert anymore. And Suge ends up suggesting that she start making pants. And she's like, wow, I'm going to make the best pants anyone has ever seen. <laughs> the way that the pants were described in this book, I was like, oh, I want I one know, of her pair right? of pants, right? Like Sounds amazing. The the materials and the pockets. The fits. The fits. Great fits. Yes. I, I really, I did enjoy this portion of the book. Although in the film, like when it's revealed that she just owns a pants store. You're like, what? When? Uh, what? Why? All right. <laughs> I mean, like in terms of like feminism, I can see how this like fits in. But <laughs> it kind what's of, happening? It kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Also, she finds out at this time. Well, she found out earlier, but. Um, the man that she thought was her father dies. Yes. And it's revealed that he's actually not her father. It's her stepfather. In fact, her father 
owned the land and he owned a store. And basically white people lynched him because he was too successful. His wife went crazy with grief. Um, A piece of shit kind of moved in and married her, took over the land, had a bunch of kids with her, and then started raping Celie, right? His stepdaughter. And I do get the point of this. The point of this is that she's able to inherit this property and kind of come into her own freedom and agency because of it, because it's passed down to her and she has this home that she inherits and that can be a home for Nettie eventually. But I also am like, how does it make a difference that it wasn't her actual father? Like when it was still the rape of like a child. Yeah. It's almost like it's excused away. Like, oh, it wasn't his own kid, so it's fine. Well, and is it supposed to be a comfort that her children aren't the result of incest? Incest? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. It just felt like this weird kind of like, oh, and her father who was raping her wasn't her father. Isn't that great? It was just a grown man. And I'm like, no, it's still not great. It's still really. It's still fucked up. Really fucked up and bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he dies. And I, I thought this was interesting. The book kind of explains that he was actually like very successful with his business. Yeah. Because he knew kind of how to like schmooze white people. Because in the film, when she inherits this house, I'm like, where the fuck did this house come from? This is like a, a beautiful big home. Like, yeah, the last time we saw like the house they were in, it was like a fucking little cottage, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I, I, there's kind of no explanation for that. I do feel like the end of this movie starts like it speeds up. It speeds up. Like <laughs> Celie's making pants. Don't worry about yeah, it. The, she has a house now. Pause dead. Big house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but she she's able to inherit this. She kind of starts setting it up because Nettie has been writing that they're all going to come back to America. And so she's like, I'm going to make this house all ready for for my sister and for like our kids, basically. Yes. Meanwhile, Albert is not doing well. He is not thriving. In fact, the curse is thriving. The hex has taken effect. <laughs> uh, we see him more directly in the film. I mean, the book is all from Celie's perspective and Nettie's through letters, but like, so it makes sense we don't see this as directly, but in the film, we just get different scenes. Like, Albert is just a drunk now. He's at his son's uh, bar, just getting wasted, going home. Animals are just like wandering the house around the is house. A mess. It's disgusting. At one point, his dad shows up and is like, oh, I didn't raise you right. You need another woman. And he's like, get the fuck out of my house. (laughs) (laughs) Marry a really young one. Yes. He's like, I don't need to make this exact same mistake again. Get out. Yeah. And there's a scene in the movie where Celie kind of sees him in like the alley of her like pants shop and is kind of like seeing him not doing well. (laughs) And it's just sort of like ignoring him. But it's really interesting, though, because... In the book, we hear about this, but we don't really see it. Like, we hear from Harpo, like, oh, yeah, he was doing really bad, and it was really awful, and I was kind of trying to help him get through it, but, like, everything was horrible for for him, and he was suffering, and then I finally was like, just send Celie all the letters that you have. Like, you have to send it to her. And he's like, and then after he sent them, like, he started to improve. Like, the curse was broken. <laughs> like. <Yes. laughs> The very real curse that you placed on him. Yes, (laughs) yes. Around this time, Suge is like touring uh, around the country singing and Celie hears some very distressing news that Suge has fallen in love 
with a 19-year-old boy. A 19-year-old flute player. Flute player. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And Celie is devastated. She's like, how could you do this? Like, we've been in love. We're together. We've been so happy. And Suga's kind of like, I'm like an old woman now. I'm like in my 50s or 60s. And like this young, hot stud like wants to be with me. And how can I like pass up that opportunity, honestly? (laughs) I think this is really interesting because... Like, Celie is devastated, ends up, like, leaving Suge, and Suge is kind of like, I'll come back to you, just give me, like, some time to, like, fuck around. Yeah. Basically. And Celie goes through all this heartbreak with Suge and almost kind of, like, comes to this revelation that, like, if you love someone, you still love them, even if they do things to hurt you, and you kind of have to love them in your own way. Yeah, and I like this, too, because in some ways you're like, God damn it, Suge, like, that's so shitty. But also it's so in line with her character, right? It's so her. Like, she just shows up at one point with her husband without telling anybody. And, and then starts sleeping with Celie and doesn't care about her husband anymore. Yes, and so, like, her finding, like, a 19-year-old boy toy is, like, totally in line with her. Um, but she's very much like, please, I still love you. Just let me just let me fuck this boy for like <laughs> six months, maybe nine months tops. Like, please <laughs> let me do this. And I'm all yours after I'm like all used up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to take a quick trip to Pound Town <laughs> and I'll be back. A tour through Pound Town. <laughs> um, let's talk about Suge's arc in the movie, though, because the movie kind of adds another dimension to her character that we don't get at all in the book, which is that she has this complicated relationship with her father. And she talks about in the movie, like, oh, um, my dad loves me. He just doesn't know it. Right. And he's basically rejected her for living this life of sin, right? Touring and singing and sleeping around and just kind of being her own woman. And he's a minister. And so we have a scene where she's in the church and he just walks on by and ignores her. Yes. And then later she sees him on the road and she's like, oh, hey, I'm married. And he's just like, "Mm -mm," like just ignoring her again. Right. And this all kind of culminates with the scene at Harpo's uh, juke joint. Yes. When she's singing and then simultaneously a church service is going on where we have like a choir singing. Yes. And one woman is like, she's like the nemesis. She's like highlighted. They're competing. Yes, they're competing. (laughs) And uh, they begin to sing the same song, right? And Suge kind of gets everyone to like march out of the juke joint and they go (laughs) all the way to the church singing and they enter the church and they're both, they're singing at each other and it's like aggressive, but they're harmonizing. Yes. And and then they come together. Yes. And then she hugs her dad and he finally hugs her back. I, it's, it is sweet. And this did make me think of a part in the book though, too, where Suge says about church that people don't find God in church that they find God elsewhere, and if anything, they bring God to church. With them to church. With them. Yeah, I like that. And and I thought, like, this felt very representative of that idea, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really good scene. I think this adds a lot for Shoke's character. Also, I was like, I get why they wanted to make a musical now. Yes. Like, this moment, I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) I know. It's a good scene. We find out in the book at this time uh, Celie gets a telegram that Nettie, the ship that Nettie and her family were on is sunk and that she's dead. Yes. 
And so Celie kind of refuses to believe that she's dead, though. She's like, I still feel netty. I still feel like you're here. And like Suge is trying to investigate and find out because actually like the World War One, I, I think, is going on right now or World War Two. And so they're like, uh, we're in the middle of a war and that's why the ship was sunk and it's all crazy. But she still feels like Nettie is out there. Yeah. And it's hard to tell because she's kind of wrapped up her talking to God with talking to Nettie. And it's like, is this just kind of a spiritual feeling like this kind of abstract thought or like, what is it that's like, or she just literally in denial. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think she says she's still receiving letters from Nettie that she sent before leaving. Yeah. So there's also this feeling of like, she's still writing there and writing to her. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she is like going through. Cause like at the same time, Suge is off with this boy and like, she thinks Nettie's dead and she's just like going through a hard time. Yeah. But who should come to her rescue at this time and be there for her? But Albert. Albert, of all people. Yes. This was one of, like, the most interesting, unexpected, but most rewarding parts of, like, this whole book, I think. And, like, you know, Celia is still visiting Sophia and Harpo and, like, other people. And so she's still in the area. So she's, like, crossing paths with Albert from time to time. And he's, like, always wanting to present himself as best as possible in those moments. But he's being, like... Very polite and asking how she is and like kind of putting his best foot forward. Yeah. And she's talking to Harpo and Sophia and they're like, oh, yeah, he's turned his life around. Yeah. They're like after the curse was broken, (laughs) he started like cleaning his house up like he's, you know, helping out with the children like he's kind of keeping busy. He's really like changed. And Celie doesn't really believe it at first and is very hesitant with him. But then they start having these interactions where they're talking about Suge, right? They both loved Suge so much. And they kind of bond over that. Yeah. They're able to connect with like, oh, remember when Suge was staying with us? And, oh, I loved this about her. Oh, I love this about her. And there's this moment where she's so sad and he literally like holds her in his arms. And it's so sweet and he's like matured so much. And I think it's great that like, I don't know that there's this hope that like he's able to be a better person. Right. And I think like them stepping outside of the dynamic of being husband and wife puts them just in a better position. Right. There's like not these expectations that he's putting on her and mm-hmm. they, and she's been allowed to like grow into her own person too. Yeah. And I mean, he they talk about their marriage and she talks about how she is not attracted to men at all. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I get it, you know? And they're kind of able to just talk frankly about what happened between them. And Albert specifically is like, listen, I was messed up. Like I was unhappy. I was letting my father influence the way I behaved. Like I was terrible to my first wife and then I was terrible to you and I wanted to be with Suge this whole time and I took it out on like everybody and like look how my kids turned out and it was my fault that I and he's really taking responsibility right for all this stuff and there's this part where he's talking to Celie and I just want to read about it he's talking about all these things that have happened with his family and how he has this regret and Celie says if you know your heart sorry I say that mean it not quite as spoiled as you think Anyhow, he say, you know how it is. You ask yourself one question, it lead to 15. I start to wonder why us need love. Why us suffer? Why us black? Why us men and women? Where do children really come from? 
It didn't take long to realize I didn't hardly know nothing. And that if you ask yourself why you black or a man or a woman or a bush, it don't mean nothing if you don't ask why you here, period. So what you think, I asked. I think us here to wonder, myself. To wonder. To ask. And that in wondering about the big things and asking about the big things, you learn about the little ones, almost by accident. But you never know nothing more about the big things than you start out with. The more I wonder, he say, the more I love. And people start to love you back, I bet, I say. They do, he say, surprise. So kind of like him almost discovering himself and almost having his own spiritual awakening, right? Oh, God. And there's this great aspect, too, where um, he... She's sewing these pants. She's making these pants. Yeah. And he's like, you know, when I was growing up, I like always, I guess like, I always liked the idea of sewing. My mom used to sew, but like people would make fun of me. So I stopped. Yeah. And she's like, well, no one's going to make fun of you now. And so he starts helping her sew and he like gets into it. Yeah. And then they just sit together and they're sewing and they're just talking and they're being together. And, and it's I'm like, so nice. Who is this man? I know. Uh, but it's so like, once again, just these ideas of like the expectations on men, right? And toxic masculinity, like Harpo liking to clean and like take care of the kids, but like not being able to like cope with that. And you're realizing that like, oh, Albert had, like, a similar thing, right? Yeah. And obviously how that expands to, like, other things. I just love that, you know, Harpo loved Sophia, this really strong woman who couldn't be really contained. And Albert loved Suge. Yeah. A a similar woman. And it's like, they love these women, but... They want to control them. But they want to control them, or at least, like, their idea of having a wife is someone that you control. And Mm -hmm. those being so in conflict that they just, like ruined their own lives like trying to like make both of those things work yeah uh and but just seeing him like mature and grow so much is like i was not expecting it and i would have never thought that it could have worked either yeah they really redeem him in a way that feels genuine yes you know and all the horrible things he did to Celie, he takes like responsibility for yeah right and i think they come together in a very unique and in their own way right it's not like they're together romantically again like that would just like not work at all although he did propose to her again yeah he's like do you want to get married again and she's like i don't like men (laughs) and he's like okay just testing you yeah (laughs) um but like the two of them make up suge ends up coming back to celie and is like i i'm done with the boy like yes it was fun um, Harpo and Sophia kind of c- get back together too. Yeah. It really feels like a lot of people are like working through their shit, right? Yes. It's and good. It's so wonderful. And then of course we get the end. Yes. Which honestly, I, we, I'd seen the movie already and reading the book, you know, you still thought, oh, maybe Nettie is dead. And I was like, are we going to leave this open-ended in the book? Uh, but we get this scene of them on the porch, yeah. Celie and like basically all of the, the cast of characters and the car pulls up down the road and some people get out and they're like, who is that? And I just wanted to say the film, this scene with Whoopi Goldberg shouting Nettie yeah. and like them rushing to each other is oh my so, God. <laughs> so emotional and so sweet. It is. It's so good. And just the two of them reuniting is so beautiful. I love in the book, we actually get a final chapter here where she writes to God again. Yes. It's like her faith in God has been restored because her sister comes back to her. 
Yeah. And I love this. It's so beautiful. And and they have she's reunited with her children too, right? She has her kids that she hasn't seen since they were born, you know, brought back into her life. And it's just so beautiful and it's so sweet. What a great way to end this story. I know, like despite like all the horrible things that especially at the beginning of the book, God, <laughs> I would have never thought that it could could end so like happy and optimistic and hopeful, but like it's great. And I think that leads us to the conversation of which version of this story we enjoyed more. Yes. Before we talk about that, though, I do have to talk about one topic that I've been saving, Ooh. which is about the author. Okay. So Alice Walker, I mean, super influential in her her poetry in this book and her other novels. And she did a lot of work and... um like activism and writing to actually prop up the writer Zora Neale Hurston actually went and like found her grave mm. and was promoting her works. Cause she's this super influential author from like the twenties um, and like the Harlem Renaissance who wrote these books and, you know, Alice Walker was really important in kind of revitalizing interest in her and bringing, okay. bringing attention to that. She also um, has been heavily involved in different activist causes. She was involved in the civil rights movement, like knew a lot of people in the civil rights movement. Also allegedly had a relationship with Tracy Chapman, the woman who wrote Fast Car. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> Which Tracy Chapman has never confirmed or denied it. But that was like something that Alice Walker alleged to have happened. Somehow fast car. It keeps coming it back. It keeps coming back. I know. Um, and so she's this very like powerful and important and influential figure, huge for black feminism, really trying to bring attention to intersectionality in feminism, yes. right? But uh oh, I was sensing a but <laughs> coming on. But so for a long time she's been a very active activist for Palestine which unfortunately is very relevant right now with the genocide that's happening there right now by the Israeli state. But she's been very vocal against Israel for a long time. And she's one of those people that that vocal activism has turned into outright anti-Semitism. Oh, no. Like, it's not like, oh, she's just speaking against Israel. It's like kind of great. No, she like literally in interviews in the last like 20 years has been like my favorite book of all time is this conspiracy theory book that talks about reptile people and like Jew oh, and Jews. No. God. Yeah, no, she's like yeah. crazy. Like crazy anti-semitic and it's really unfortunate to see someone who's done so much good and who has meant so much to so many people and has inspired so much in a positive direction just kind of like, where does this come from, right? I, I find this, like, topic really, like, interesting, and I am in no way really qualified to talk about it much, but the idea of conspiracy theories, like, within the black community, and in some ways it makes so much sense. Like, black people have so much reason to distrust, like, the government oh, yeah. and higher powers and things like that, right? And I think that can so easily be tweaked into, like, oh, well, Jewish people control everything, right? Yeah. Like, I think that distrust can be altered into this conspiracy theory angle. I mean, like, we're seeing that with Kanye West. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that, like, unfortunately with other, like, famous black people, right? And 
uh, that's so unfortunate when that happens to Yeah. Well, and there are plenty of white people who are anti-Semitic. Oh, it's yeah. It's obviously, like, people love to talk more about, oh, did you know that, like, this black person is also anti-Semitic, right? Because it's like, oh, they're a minority that's also trying to oppress a different minority, right? But, like, it's just really sad. And I think a lot of people don't know about her being crazy now. And so she keeps getting interviewed and, like, <sighs> featured on all these, like, really big publications like the New York Times, talk shows, and then she'll just spout, like, she'll bring up this book or this author, and then people are like, oh, what's that? And then they have to, like, put out statements afterward that are like, we don't support this! <laughs> oh, no. Like, because people think Alice Walker, yeah. right? This amazing black feminist who's done so much for women, for the black community. She's also... um anti-trans so um uh, yeah we've got that how, going as well do you know how old she is she's like, 80 okay so i like not to make any excuses no. but like when you start reaching a certain age like i also start to like question like how you're actually like processing things and thinking of like how critically are you thinking about things you know at a certain point for sure but it just is really sad and I still think that I can read this book and enjoy it and get a lot out of it. But like, I totally understand if this is kind of tainted for them now, right? Because of all this. And like, that's what happens, right? We have the same thing with the Harry Potter series, right? We have this like legacy that's kind of tarnished a little bit. And it is really sad. And I, I wanted to make sure I brought it up because I don't want to, I think you can appreciate it. And there's so many good things that I love about this book. And I'm so glad we talked about it. And I think people should read this, right? Yeah. It's such a great book, but you can't talk about it without mentioning this aspect of the author's character. I, and especially with everything going on in the world right now, I think it's super valid. I think a big part of it is always like how much do their toxic viewpoints filter into their work? Yeah. Right. Where, like, in this case, like, there's... Probably not that much. No, like, nothing that, like, I can at least pick up on. So it's easier to read this and be like, I can ignore what she's saying now, like, that sort of thing. But, like, when it's a, a different story, like, I don't know, like, J.K. Rowling, where, like, some of the stuff you read, you're like, ooh, I kind of see maybe... The angles Some here. things there now, right? So, but uh, still really important to uh, point out. Yes. So now we can talk about... <laughs> <laughs> well, now I have to rethink everything. <laughs> no, I mean, I think my still... My answer you know, is the same, which I think the book is better. I, I'm going to agree. It's uh, just it's, it, I really like the writing style, like the letters format. And I just think thematically it's so rich. Yeah. Like in some ways it's talking about like only a few broad topics, right? Like gender and race and like religion. Right. But it's kind of examining those from like so many different angles and adding so much nuance. Right. Like, yeah men can be so awful and cruel to women and like the women that they're married to and everything. But like, why are they like that? And like, let's maybe examine that a little bit and like adding this like aspect of like Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. And like bringing a lot more like scope and nuance and conversation to it. And you mentioning her being like so influential as far as um, intersectional feminism. I was thinking about that too. Like this book examines like, what does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a black woman, right? Yeah. And kind of like examining how multifaceted our identities can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's 
such a good book in so many ways. And it's so moving and just thoughtful and beautiful. I really like this movie too, though. Like, uh, yeah, it's a good movie. I just think like when you compare the richness of the story, you kind of have to go with the book. Well, and it's funny too, because I think the choices like Spielberg made to condense the story honestly make a lot of sense. Like even at the end when some things feel a little bit out of left field, uh, I'm still like, I mean, it doesn't like really hurt the story at all. No. Uh, so I feel like they almost made all the right decisions in condensing the story. I know. But when you compare it to the richness of the novel and like how much depth there is because it just gets time to examine it. It's kind of like if the right author is writing the right story, there's almost no movie that can be that can as top good. It. Yeah. yeah. But unfortunately, sometimes authors just don't utilize their time well. They don't. The medium. The medium or like examining their story in an interesting way. Like they almost like don't utilize the written word as well. Um, but when it's like that perfect blend of like good writer, good subject, interesting story, like it's almost like nothing can top it. And yeah. I kind of feel that way with this. It's hard to beat, but I do really enjoy the movie. So we're going to say it's the book, but I mean, good movie also. Quality movie. Definitely worth checking out. And I'm excited to see the musical, too. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. Okay. So first up for lightning round, I want to mention the storyline of Mary Agnes, a.k.a. Squeak, in this book because <laughs> she ends up going with Celie and Shug when they leave um, and go to Memphis. And she starts singing um, around the same clubs that Shug is singing at, right? And Shook's husband, Grady, kind of like goes after her and ends up running off with Mary Agnes. First, he's growing weed in their backyard. (laughs) Yes. And he's like, has this whole idea about selling it and stuff. And then he and Mary Agnes run off together and they go to a place in Panama where they have a reefer plantation, which is how they refer to it. (laughs) And then eventually Mary Agnes comes back and is like, yeah, it was good for a while, but I was like so blazed like out of my mind all the time that I kind of had to like quit and come back. And she kind of comes back for her daughter who she just like left behind to go off and like be with this man smoking weed all day. In like Panama. Yeah. <laughs> the number of like characters that like leave their partners, find someone else, come back to their partners, like sleeping with other people while their partners are like, (laughs) it's so wild. I also really loved like the whole explanation of weed in this story. Like Celia is explaining to Sophia. Oh yeah. And And Harpo and and then rolls a joint with them. (laughs) They like smoke and get high together. Yeah. It's It's great. It's very funny. So after uh, Sophia is no longer the maid to the mayor and the mayor's wife, uh, she is still haunted by the uh, white girl who she helped raise, essentially. <laughs> Her name is Eleanor Jane, and she's grown now, and she ends up getting married, and she has a kid, and she just keeps, like, showing up to Sophia's house and being, like, annoying. <laughs> and she brings her kid, and her kid gets into everything, and Sophia is just trying to be very polite. <laughs> but at a certain point, she, like, can't hold herself back anymore, and she's, like... I can only be polite to you. Like, I'm sorry. I didn't choose to raise you. Like, ask your parents about how I ended up working for your family. They'll tell you I was in prison and they took me. Yeah. And she just kind of is, like, very blunt with her. And you kind of feel bad for this girl, too, like, a little bit, right? She's just kind of dense about the the dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. But it kind of comes up back again later that they kind of 
reform. They kind of make up. They kind of make up and she's like helping Sophia at her house because Sophia has. So one of her daughters yeah. has like a, an illness that like makes her sick a lot and mm-hmm. they, they give her yams. <laughs> and so this white girl is like helping out and she's like cooking food with yams for the daughter. And yeah. you're kind of like, oh, this is like really sweet. I'm actually glad that they were able to like kind of reconcile. Yeah, she kind of realizes what Sophia went through like working for her family and she's kind of like that sucks and I'm going to try to like make it up to her if I can you know yes yeah it kind of works out and her parents are like offended like you're going to work for a black woman <laughs> like what are you talking about but, yeah yeah uh next for lightning round it's just super small but when Celia and Shug are looking for the letters okay they're looking all through the house they're yes. like where did Albert hide the letters there's just a random cat Ian. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, where did this cat come from? We never see the cat again. We've never seen the cat in any other shot. There's just a cat. And Suge makes a comment like, oh, I'm so sick of this cat. And I'm like, we've never seen this where, cat. Where did this cat? What are you talking about? Like, are they gaslighting us that this cat has been in the movie the whole time? We needed more of the cat. Definitely. Uh, last up for lightning round. So I love to go through IMDb and just read the trivia and like find fun facts and quotes and stuff. And this little tidbit was very high up on the list. And it talks about that, like, Oprah Winfrey ad-libbed most of her scene at the dinner table near the end of the film. Uh, And it says, after the scene, Goldberg walked over to Winfrey, gave her a hug, and told her that she now became an actress. (laughs) And that's, like, the end of the thing. And I was like, I'm like, all right. I'm like, that could kind of be taken, like, in the wrong way. Yeah. Like, she's been acting throughout this whole movie, and now Whoopi Goldberg's like, you're an actor now that you've proven yourself or something. But I'm like, I guess it's fine. Like, I guess there wasn't, like, any misinterpreting. A little ways farther down the IMDb list, I came across this. A minor yet longstanding feud between Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey began while The Color Purple was still being filmed. After Winfrey had improvised the now classic dinner table scene, Goldberg approached her and reportedly told her she had now become an actor. It is alleged that following the remark, Winfrey rebuffed, what do you know? This is your first movie, too. (laughs) Very Sophie of her. (laughs) I just love that the first fact was like, oh, isn't that sweet? Yeah, framing it as like this, like, good thing. And then the second one is like, this began a feud. (laughs) Because I thought, I'm like, that could kind of be taken as like a... That could be offensive. A backhanded compliment. Yeah. And apparently Oprah did take it that way. (laughs) I love that. Um, That's Lightning Round, and that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. We already talked about the bonus episodes that you get um, once a month if you're a patron at any level. You also get access to our Discord, and um, you can suggest episodes to us, and we'll do them. Um, (laughs) We're forced to contractually. (laughs) You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and you can find all those links at CoverToCredits.com. You can also email us at CoverToCreditsPod at gmail.com and consider leaving us a positive rating or star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.